In this section, we're going to be reading an article called From Ancient Greece to Iraq, The Power of Words in Wartime. Robin Tomlock Lakoff wrote this, and she or he is a professor of linguistics at the University of California in Berkeley. She, okay, there we go. Now we know the gender, has written a number of books, including Language and Woman's Place, <clears throat> and more recently, the language war. Dr. Lakoff works to raise awareness about how language is used to create and maintain insidious power structures that, for the most part, remain hidden. One of her primary goals is to help create an equality of discourse through her teaching and writing. Okay, now, as we are reading this, it's important to note that we're looking for confusing moments and in unfamiliar terms as we are reading. It's a pretty short read, and so let's dig into it here to make sense of what is happening in From Ancient Greece to Iraq, The Power of Words in Wartime. An American soldier refers to an Iraqi prisoner as it. And so I'm just going to stop and think aloud to model kind of things that you do whenever you're reading. You're making personal connections to it. So in this instance, I have a personal reaction to this of horror. <clears throat> I we, we call inanimate objects its. We call pets its. Uh, and so to talk of something as an it is very demeaning. A general speaks not of Iraqi fighters, but of the enemy. A weapons manufacturer doesn't talk about people, but about targets. And so now we have, uh, sometimes you stop, about, stop and think about the rationale for the person using these things. It would be very easy to talk about something as a target and much less personal and less insidious to talk about it um, as a target. <clears throat> Bullets and bombs are not the only tools of war. Words, too, play their part. Human beings are social animals, genetically hardwired to feel compassion toward others. Under normal situations, normal conditions, most people find it very difficult to kill. But yet all of those words that were used in the first paragraph are things that seem to make it easier and more dehumanizing in terms of thinking about war. But in war, military recruits must be persuaded that killing other people is not only acceptable, but even honorable. The language of war is intended to bring about that change. And not only for soldiers in the field, in wartime, language must be created to enable combatants and non-combatants alike to see the other side as killable, to overcome the innate queasiness over the taking of human life. Soldiers and those who remain at home learn to call their enemies by names that make them seem not quite human, inferior, contemptible, and not like us. You know, this is really shocking me. I didn't ever really think about that this was something that was done purposefully to condition a soldier's mind so that they would be able to kill. I'm reading on page six now, kind of in the middle. The specific word 
events change from culture to culture and war to war. The names need not be obviously demeaning. Just the fact that we can name them gives us a sense of superiority and control. If, in addition, we give them nicknames, we can see them as smaller, weaker, and childlike, not worth taking seriously as fully human. Uh, There's a restaurant here um, that had like a derogatory name. I think it had something about beaners in it. And uh, I think that whenever you give people nicknames that are derogatory like that, it really is demeaning to that person, but it changes the way you think about them as, as well, that it somehow becomes okay to talk about them like that. And it elevates yourself into a place that you probably don't deserve. So she transitions now from this modern talk to the way it was done in the Greek and Roman times. The Greeks and Romans report referred to everyone else as barbarians. Etymologically, those who only babble, only go barbar. During the American Revolution, the British called the colonists Yankees, a term with a history that is still in dispute. <laughs> My mama, whenever she gets mad at me, sometimes she'll call me a Yankee. I know I've really crossed the line at that point. While the British intended it disparagingly, the Americans, in perhaps the first historical instance of reclamation, made the word their own and gave it a positive spin, turning the derisive song, Yankee Doodle, into our first, if unofficial, national anthem. In World War I, the British gave the Germans a nickname, Jerry's, from the first syllable of German, J. In World War II, Americans referred to the Japanese as Japs. The names maybe refer to real or imagined cultural and physical differences that emphasize the ridiculous or the repugnant. So in various wars, the British called the French frogs. Germans have been called krauts as a reference to weird and smelly food. The Vietnamese were called slopes and slants. Koreans were referred to simply as gooks. The war in Iraq has added new examples. Some American soldiers refer to the Iraqis as hajis, used in a derogatory way, apparently unaware that the word, which comes from the Arabic term for pilgrimage to Mecca, is used as a term of respect for older Muslim men. I think I remember a derogatory one. They called them towel heads. The Australian ethologist Conrad Lawrence suggested that the more clearly we see other members of our own species as individuals, the harder we find it to kill them. So some terms of war are collective nouns, encouraging us to see the enemy as an undifferentiated mass rather than individuals capable of suffering. Crusaders called their enemy the Saracen, and in World War I, the British called Germans the Hun. So not seeing individual people, 
but as a mass of people. American soldiers are trained to call those they are fighting against the enemy. It is easier to kill an enemy than an Iraqi. The word enemy itself provides the facelessness of a collective noun. Its non-specificity also has a fear-inducing connotation. Enemy simply means simply those we are fighting without reference to their identity. The terrors and uncertainties of war make learning this kind of language especially compelling for soldiers on the front. But civilians back home also need to believe that what their country is doing is just and necessary, and that the killing they are supporting is in some way different from the killing in civilian life that is rightly punished by the criminal justice system. The use of language developed for military purposes by civilians reassures them that war is not murder. The linguistic habits that soldiers must absorb in order to fight make atrocities like those at Abu Ghraib virtually inevitable. The same language that creates a psychological chasm between us and them and enables American troops to kill in battle makes enemy soldiers fit subjects for torture and humiliation. The reasoning is they are not really human, so they will not feel the pain. Once language draws that line, all kinds of mistreatment become imaginable and then justifiable. To make the abuses at Abu Ghraib unthinkable, we would have to abolish war itself. <laughs>